Hey everyone, I'm your host Patrick, and this is Not Adding Up. for all the feedback I got on the first episode. I can't explain how happy it makes me that you guys are enjoying the content I put together. I will continue to do so and I hope you guys continue to listen. With that being said, I don't want to waste too much time because I know everybody's dying to hear the end of this case. We left off with Damien, Jason, and Jesse all getting convicted for the murders of Michael, Stevie, and Christopher. So I just wanted to let my sister have some time to say what she thought about the case because we kind of just ended it abruptly last time. I didn't want to keep it too long over an hour. So I definitely think that the convictions were just total BS. Like I feel like they had a confession and they literally went so hard on that. And if they wouldn't have had that confession from what was it? Jesse? Jesse. Yes. Um, then they really wouldn't have anything because I feel like these boys were just good candidates to do something bad in their eyes. You know, they fit these descriptions, but they definitely had nothing on, like, nothing else added up in this case for them to be convicted of this crime. Um, I definitely think it's interesting that they didn't really look much into any of the parents or any family or anybody like that. Anybody else, I just think that it's just so strange that it was just these random teenage boys. Um, so yeah, I'm really interested to see what's evolved since the convictions because obviously we know they were convicted. So I'm interested to see what's happened over the last, how many years has it been since? 1994. 20, uh, 20 almost 20 years. 28, 28 what, 1994, what, what, or 1992, honey. Excuse my, excuse my math skills, yeah. It's been a minute, so I know that there has to be an evolvement from then. Yeah, so just to clarify, because I know we talked about it in the first episode, but they did look very slightly into one of the parents, which was Mark Byers, and the whole knife thing, but they were very quick to dismiss him. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is it's just like, they? I do remember that. It just, I don't know, I would expect a little bit more. I don't know why I thought a little bit more into family. Not necessarily the parents, but just any family members or anybody um, connected to the family versus, again, these random young individuals. Yeah, somebody with a possible motive or connection to the boys, yeah, as you just said. The book that I was referencing in the last episode had a quote from it, and it says, between 2001 and 2006, there were 23 instances of manslaughter, 88 forcible rapes, 375 robberies, and nearly 1,000 aggravated assaults in West Memphis. Definitely indicates that it's a violent area with a good bit of crime considering the population is not incredibly high and it seems to me like there could have been a lot more suspects that they looked into harder with this case if there is this much crime happening after the case and I met I referenced some pretty horrific cases that took place before the West Memphis 3 in the area so I just feel they didn't do any of the little boys justice by taking the cop-out conviction that they got from Jesse yes I I definitely agree I think they deserve more than that I can't remember if I mentioned briefly in the end of the last episode, but when the HBO documentary was released that was getting made throughout the trial, there was a great response throughout the country. 
people all over were just pissed off about this conviction and it was grabbing eyeballs everywhere. It got so much attention that it inspired a website to support the boys and raise money to fight for the West Memphis Three. So this website came out in 1996 and it was specifically for the purpose of getting these three boys out of prison. Also interesting, like I know that there was technology, you know, in the 90s, but the fact that they had a website in 1996 for these boys is, I don't know, you just, that's not something that you hear of much from, I feel like, back then, something being used like that. But. No, it's funny, the documentary was showing it, and it was just like, it looked so old. Yeah, you could, I can see the graphics now, I can see, like, the style of the website, but yeah, it's just kind of crazy to think that one of the people was using a keyboard and it was like split in two like it was not a, the standard keyboard, keyboard that we use today and I guess it was like an experiment in the 90s <laughs> but I was like what, what is he using but yeah they were going to do anything they could to w raise awareness and they were taking advantage of the new World Wide Web the original conviction for those three boys took place on March 18th 1994 and three days after that conviction Damien was sentenced to death, so he would be on death row for numerous years following his conviction. Um, is he? He's obviously been in the state in a state that ha do they have, have the death penalty? Death yes, yeah. yes. Arkansas has the death penalty. It's important to note that the judge that was on the original two trials, Judge David Burnett, remained the residing authority over the case until two thousand and eight. He would time and time again deny the boys' requests for retrials with the nation not paying attention to the case and the creators of the West Memphis Three website beginning to put on an investigation of their own, new evidence finally starts to surface. So one of the most important pieces of information that surfaced about this case came from criminal profiler Brent Turvey, who was funded by the West Memphis Three support group. He had some very interesting opinions on the case and he believes like I believed and mentioned in the first episode, that clearly the bodies were not murdered at the site they were found. This was a dumping site, and the perpetrator knew the area well. He believes he had been there before and was very familiar with the area. He also disagrees with the medical examiner from the trial and said that these wounds would not have taken someone who has a precise hand and skill to inflict. He says huh. that anybody could have done this if they were angry enough. So the wounds that they were talking yeah. about, how they were so precise yeah, and it would have yeah. taken a long time. He says no. But it's interesting because th that was a point of the defense in the trial. So like the defense was saying this that, wasn't the boys because it could have taken so long. Yes. And they don't have the skill to do this. But this investigator was disagreeing with it anyway. There is a crucial, crucial, crucial piece of evidence that Mr. Turby finds. And that is bite marks on the boys' bodies that he Oh, had. wow. So with these bite marks, they were able to compare the three bite marks of the West Memphis Three that have been convicted and in prison. And... Let me guess, the dental records didn't match up. They didn't match up? How did you know? <laughs> so you would think that that would be enough to get them a retrial, but it, it was... Denied again? Not that simple. Not that simple. Also, did it say, like, where these bite marks were? Were there, like, multiple bite marks? Or was it just, like, one bite mark on each body? It didn't really get into 
the location of it in the documentary that I was watching from HBO. And it, I don't even know if it was found on multiple boys or not. Okay. So if it was found on each of the boys. And another thing interesting. that... Interesting. It was just interesting. A bite mark. And it's... I don't even know how they would... I'm like no forensic pathologist and or criminal investigator, but I don't know how they would go back and test that from there. It was. It happened in 1994, and this was... Mm-hmm. This uh, surfaced, I believe, in 2007. So that would have been 13 years. So obviously we don't have the bodies anymore. It was He noticed it on the picture... So the technology they have must be insane. But they compared the bite marks and they didn't match the boys. So that was a turning point for the case. They said, we can, this is something we can work with, the West Memphis City Support Group, and they continue to press. As I mentioned, the West Memphis Three put in numerous requests for retrials. All were denied by Judge Burnett until he left his position as judge in 2008 to become a senator for the state of Arkansas. But the West Memphis Three Support Group was with them for every step of their retrial process. Before we get into what they do with this new evidence, let's revisit some of the individuals that I was discussing in the first episode, starting with Mark Byers. So I didn't mention this in part one because I didn't feel like it was very important to the case. And that by saying that, I mean, I don't think it makes him any less suspicious or more suspicious of murdering these three boys. But in 1992, a year before the murder, Mark was convicted of a cocaine sales conspiracy. So that is just not good for his uh, criminal record. Doesn't really line up with murdering children, but he is he has a rap sheet. So shortly after the murder of their son, Mark and Melissa Byers left West Memphis and moved 140 miles northwest of West Memphis to Cherokee Village. Along with the terrible memories they were leaving behind in West Memphis, they also were leaving over a dozen warrants, most of which were for writing bad checks. So they leave West Memphis and they move to Cherokee Village. In this village, this community is one that calls itself, quote, the happiest, friendliest, and most worry-free people in all of Arkansas. That is from the book that Greg Day wrote on the case. And he also says for the buyers that Cherokee Village is like, quote, a bad episode of Dukes and Hazard. So from the minute they get there, they start getting into trouble. They make friends with the neighbors and not long passes before the neighbors say that Mark Byers spanked their son and they say that he spanked him to the point of bruising. Mark disagrees with that and he tells a different story. He says that he just spanked the boy a couple times and sent him on his way. But this is the second time that we have had a spanking incident with Mark Byers, which once again, I don't think necessarily makes him a murderer, but it's just something that's coming up frequently. The couple was also accused of stealing more than $20,000 from their neighbor's house at their new home. It is not clear if it's the same neighbors as the boy that they were accused of, that he was accused of spanking. And it doesn't seem like they were really convicted on this because they didn't do any jail time, either one of them. This next incident raised a lot of questions for Mark Byers. So on March 29th, 1996, less than three years after the murder of her son, Melissa Byers dies at 6.25 p.m. Melissa was struggling with an addiction at this point. She had struggled with on and off throughout her entire life. 
though Mark was very compliant with the police and gave them a story or gave them his recount of the day that she passed. And Mark says that earlier that day, they were looking around for some hydromorphine for her. Mark says the only reason that he went with her is because he was worried about her safety because I think that's believable. He said that if he didn't go with her, then he didn't know when she would come home and where she would go. Definitely, definitely probably an issue that he had faced frequently. He reports they found some, quote, K4s and returned home. I don't know. It's probably slang for some type of drug. But after they returned home, he says the two had sex, talked for a while, and then took a nap. And then he remembers waking up at 3.20 and Melissa was still alive laying next to him. He rolled over and went back to sleep for a little bit and woke up again at 6 p.m. and went to the kitchen for a glass of milk. And if that's like not the most incarcerating piece of evidence right here is the fact that this grown-ass man woke up from a nap and <laughs> went to the fridge and got a glass of milk. I'm like, who wants a glass of milk after taking a nap? That just makes me... I hate milk in general. That makes me nauseous. So... Yeah, so I'm like... <sighs> but I just thought that was interesting that he was going for some milk right after that nap. So the toxicology m- reports on Melissa's body reported that there were numerous prescription drugs, some of which she was prescribed and others she was not. However, they were not in lethal amounts, and they were concluded not to be the cause of death. Interesting. So... The final conclusion of the autopsy was undetermined, but there were numerous abnormalities associated with sudden unexpected death that were found. Examples of this are enlargement of the heart, fatty liver, elevated glucose, etc. So she had very poor overall health. That mentions that she was overweight and was not a very active person and just was not living a very healthy lifestyle. She was addicted to drugs, so... Yeah, she just had one uh, negative thing after another against her. So as suspicious as this may look, personally, I don't think Mark had anything to do with Melissa's death. And at this point, I have a lot of sympathy for this man. He's lost his son. He's lost his wife. He still has one son, Ryan. But he talks about how he struggled a lot with this. Ryan had moved out of the house at this point, so he was living alone. And he slipped into, obviously, a deep depression. All by himself. Yeah. But he did not stay out of trouble after Melissa's death. So not long after, he was convicted of contributing to the delinquency of a minor when he allowed two teen boys to fight and kept anyone from breaking them up with a gun. (laughs) So just, like, stood watch and... (laughs) threatened people with a gun if they were going to break him up. He was also convicted of a residential burglary. And his initial sentence for this burglary was 10 years, but it was reduced to a very strange condition. So this condition was, quote, defendant is prohibited from entering entering and remaining or residing in Fulton County or any county in the 3rd Judicial District, which was a four-county area. So they basically just, like, exiled this man's ass. Like, it's, Yeah, it's that's an... interesting. Also, I wonder what he broke in for. Okay, so he doesn't have, you know, he also doesn't struggle with addiction. Um, but was he just in on hard times for money? What did he go in there? They after? were, they had a lot of trouble with money throughout the their entire lives. So that was, Probably like, the bad check issue. issue. Yeah. yeah. It was definitely a money issue. Prohibited from living in Fulton County or the 3rd Judicial District, which is very, very weird. His lawyer was like, I've never seen that before, but you really don't got much to go off of. Like, you got to do what they're going to say because you are mm-hmm. going to get thrown in he prison if to. not. So a week after this order to vacate 
the county police show up at his home and told him that he has 24 hours to leave. Mark was thinking that he would have more time to get his affairs in order, but they said, no, you need to leave now. No cop is going to arrest you around here. They just want you out. So that... Interesting. No cop is going to arrest you around here. They just want you out. The last part, they just want you out, is not a direct quote, but they he was told by police that no cop in the area would arrest him. He gave the excuse to police when they were trying to um, evict him that his car was illegal. So he was worried about getting pulled over. Oh, and they okay. said, so honey, you have no problems. The, the cops are not worried about your expired... Expiration Whatever tags. the hell was wrong. Expiration tags. Expired license plate tags. Back to this bite mark. The bite marks on the victims not being matched to the West Memphis Three were a hot point of interest for the West Memphis Three support group. In the second installment of Paradise Lost, members of the West Memphis Three support group are questioning Mark, asking him to submit his bite mark to the police department, to which he said he would if he was asked, but he also shows them that he had them removed and now wears dentures. He said he would be happy to hand over the records to the police if they asked, and that his teeth had been removed before the murders, leaving him of any suspicion. But he also said that his teeth were falling out due to a medication he was on, Tegretol, which he claimed was known to cause periodontal disease, which causes teeth to fall out. However, this is not listed as a side effect of Tegretol. Despite telling the West Memphis Three support group that his teeth had been removed before the murders, dental records show that they were removed four years after in 1997. Coincidentally, one year after the original documentary was released. Huh. Despite all of these incriminating circumstances, Mark Byers, more than any other suspect for these murders, has an airtight alibi. He was searching for his son with police during the suspected time of the murders. So after telling you all of these creepy and suspicious things about Mark Byers, I'm here to tell you that I personally do not believe that Mark was involved in this case, in the murder of these boys. And there's some things that come out a little bit later that I think will make it clear to most people. That he's not. That he's changed his um, his views on this case. He, he comes full circle, full circle. And honestly, like, I'm like, damn, Mark. Like, I was watching him evolve from 1994 to the last documentary, which was released in 2014. Oh, wow. I think it was recorded, uh, I think it was filmed in like 2011, 2012. So seeing him grow and seeing him change is actually really, it's nice to see that somebody who has this trauma can still like try to do what he believes is right. And it shows you that he, that's really what he was always doing is doing what he believed is right. He lost his boy and he was emotional and he is a small town southern man who had the opportunity to be on a documentary that was going to be on the big screen so i think that that played into a lot of what we saw of mark byers so the next person we're going to talk about is not a suspect at all but that lovely investigator gary gitchell who was the one who quoted that the case was an 11 out of 10. so this is a quote from gary gitchell there has never in my mind been a doubt that we got the wrong person never in my mind I can go to bed at night and sleep knowing that I did my job and I did it well. I just don't know how he can give that type of statement after he just has no real evidence. Like, there is really nothing. And I just don't know how... It's good police work, honey, intuition. I know. I just don't know how, I don't know how he can say that. I'm sure that he probably doesn't sleep soundly at night, but 
Maybe he does. I just can't. I, I, you, he, if you see this man's demeanor, he sleeps like a baby. <laughs> this man sleeps like a baby. I just think that this is just insane to continuously be like, yep, think it's fine. You know, we had our 11 out of 10 case. This was but, closed. But, 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 in an interview in 2019, while he believes the case is solid, he does take back that 11 out of 10 comment. He said that if I could go back, I probably wouldn't have said something like that. He took it back in a very nonchalant way. But he said, yeah, that was maybe not the best thing. After probably the last six years of people being like, pretty much, fuck you, dude, you're way wrong. 15 years. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes. But I just mean, yeah, yeah, I see what you're just giving. I just keep wanting to mention how long this case is because they were, these people, the three were in jail this entire time, prison this entire time. And it's not like he was some rookie investigator. Like, he was retiring after that case. So, like, yeah, you take back that comment, but like, what's changed? Yes. (laughs) What's changed? You still are confident in your case. Another thing the documentary harps on is the fact that when Jesse recanted his alibi and gave this story of a wrestling match, that he was able to provide a pretty pretty tight alibi for that, but the police were not accepting that story. Which is, I guess, I don't understand how when he had, obviously, if he had uh, a ways to back up that he was there, how they couldn't take that at all yes i understand he confessed to murder but you have so much else to take into uh, consideration with him Sarah gets still feels pretty good about the case but in 2007 along with bite mark evidence the west memphis Three support group finds a new piece to add to their collection and this piece unlike all former pieces of evidence was dna so this DNA links one of the suspects or individuals surrounding the case, because he really wasn't a suspect, to the shoelaces that were used to tie up the boys. Which I think was such a prominent um, uh, thing with the confession of Jesse that he just used a rope, because I think it was just so distinct that they, A, found shoes in the woods, and then B, used the shoelaces to tie them up. A hair found on the shoelaces was found to match none of the convicted just like that bite mark. A hair was found on the shoelace, but it was not found to be connected to any of the convicted three. It was also not found to be connected to Mark Byers, but it was found to be connected to somebody close to the boys, Terry Hobbs. Now, if we don't remember, Terry is the one that didn't report Stevie missing after he was quote unquote looking for him for hours and dropped off his worried wife to In addition to his hair, the hair of one of his friends was also found to be at the scene on a tree trunk. Okay. So let's get into Terry and what has been going on since the murders. Terry Hobbs maintains throughout the entirety of the making of the documentaries and investigations of this case that the West Memphis Three are the killers. He maintains this even with the DNA evidence linking him to the crime scene. And boy, oh boy, did rumors fly whenever this evidence came out. I'm sure. The West Memphis Three support group is pushing harder than they ever have before for a new trial. They even got the recognition of some celebrities, including Johnny Depp. Wow. It was in an interview, and he was mentioning how he feels that he could have been targeted just like these boys were. Yeah, yeah, for how he was when he was younger and... More importantly, a celebrity that was involved in this case were celebrities is the Dixie Chicks. So the Dixie Chicks took a very prominent role in the West Memphis Three support group and even spoke at one of the rallies. 
Oh, cool. So they were very in support of getting these boys out of prison. And when the DNA evidence came out, one of them must have said something about Terry Hobbs because he was not happy. And he took his ass to court and filed a defamation lawsuit against the Dixie mm-hmm. Chicks. So let's just let's just think about this. Okay, this man... Also, while you're saying Dixie Chicks, all I can think of is now is Wide Open Spaces. It's just a song of theirs. It's just like running rampant through my head. And I'm only going to be thinking about that for the next couple of minutes. See, I couldn't, I couldn't link one thing to Dixie oh, I Chicks. Know, I, know. I don't you're know one a, of you them. You were never a country music fan. Oh, it's um, country. Yeah, it makes me specifically think of that song. In particular, it makes me think of... Uh, my mother-in-law every time I hear it just she listens to like older country music and they have like early 90s music that <laughs> I'm thinking about well I'm sorry to put the Dixie Chicks on the brain now that I know their country I'm glad that I didn't know them <laughs> he files this lawsuit and I really don't think that's the best idea I don't think he can be nearly as loaded as these um, celebrities <laughs> and performers yeah. I'm sure that their legal team is a little bit better than whoever Terry Hobbs found on the corner of his like downtown street I don't know but he wanted to take him on and this is when everything starts to unwind for Terry Hobbs because whenever you sue famous people their lawyers are going to look into you and try to get anything they can on you and Against boy you, yeah boy did, did they, they boy did they find some stuff on Terry Hobbs so let's rewind go all the way back to the night of May 5th 1993, the night the boys went missing. So his alibi for this night after he drops off Pam was that he was searching for Stevie. He says he was with Dana Moore and Mark Byers, both of which deny this. Years later, his story has changed, and he said that he had gone over to his friend David Jacoby's house and played guitar for the entire evening. David Jacoby says that's not true. He left at least twice and was definitely unaccounted for. Terry's alibi, or rather alibis, are not looking good for him, as they now leave him unaccounted for from 6 to 8.30 p.m. Wow. Does that sound familiar to you? If it doesn't, that is the time that Gitchell was forcing Jesse to... Forcing Jesse to, in his confession, he was forcing him to pass 6 p.m. Noon wasn't okay. Yeah. Five wasn't okay. It had to be past six. It had to be dark. So he has no alibi. You ain't got no alibi, Terry. You ugly. You ugly. U G L Y. Terry's got no alibi. <laughs> Terry has no alibi. In addition to not having an alibi, Terry left West Memphis to get away from Pam just a few weeks after the murders. Weeks after weeks. the murders? Weeks. Wow. I... Uh... That's a little, I don't know, cold-hearted. She's probably in such distress, but also I'm sure this was causing a lot of arguments at home. Pam says the two would have eventually got divorced anyways, and I don't think she was very shocked by this. I think that they were having issues before as well. Makes sense. Because they were definitely having more issues after. The two would eventually get divorced, but not after Terry would shoot Pam's brother for stepping in between them in an argument. Shoot him. Did he kill him or did he just... No, the brother, the brother did survive. So that is And good. this was post uh, their, the child... This is post Stevie Branch's murder. Oh. This is post him leaving her two weeks after the murder too. This is... They definitely had a rocky relationship before and after this tragedy. 
So whenever he's asked about this incident where he shot Pam's brother, he literally laughs. And the lawyer goes, you think that's funny? And he was like, oh, no, just this again, because he's been asked about it so many times. And then he insinuates that Pam deserved it because she was bugging him about another woman and wouldn't quit. Okay, she deserved it. So this is a great man we're talking about here. Great man. One last piece of evidence against Terry is that a neighbor reports years after the murders that she saw the boys in their neighborhood followed by none other than Terry Hobbs, who was calling for Stevie. And you may think that this is weird that it never came to light, but this is because the police were not looking in the Hobbs neighborhood. They were looking in the buyers That's and the That's what morgues. I was going to say. They didn't share the neighborhood, right? The Hobbs are the only family... Well, I mean, the two live together and one lives separate. The buyers so and the moors were yeah. neighbors. And the woods that neighbored... Of, like it was neighboring the Robin Hood Woods was near neighboring by the uh, Moors and the Byers. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. So it's not that strange that it didn't come to light because they were no, not they didn't put attention into the neighborhood that the Hobbs lived in. So she was saying that she would have come forth earlier with that information, and she is very confident that she saw him that day. And let me guess, he's still out there. While you were talking about this, I couldn't help but like look him up just to see what this man looks like, and I'm like. He's not in jail or anything. There have been no convictions. No, he's just out there living his best life, looking like a piece of poop. So they were not searching the Hobbs neighborhood and definitely not after the bodies were found closer to the buyers and the moors. So that also looks bad for Terry. Another piece of evidence that has nothing to do with the suspects in the case, but has something to do with the case itself. In 2008, evidence surfaced that the jury foreman of Jason and Damien's original trial had discussed the case with the prosecuting attorney before the case and that the jury was selected of individuals who all had preconceived notions on the case. Oh, wow. Not that that surprises me, but come on. If that wasn't enough, uh, the foreman, Kent Arnold, specifically sought out the position because he believed the boys were guilty. Oh, this is just such a uh, trial of misjustice on so many different levels to these poor kids. Just so much misjustice done in this case to the children, the victims themselves, you know, the, the, the convicted, uh, all around a uh, terrible job. And you have to remember that the jury's job is to come to a conclusion that beyond a reasonable doubt, this person committed this crime there is no doubt in my mind that they didn't and i don't know how anybody could i literally don't know how anybody could say that on good conscience like without a doubt yes these boys committed these crimes because there's nothing i i know i've like said that four or five times but literally there's just nothing that adds up to give you enough evidence to say oh yes for sure there's not even anything that makes me think random like Oh, yeah, maybe. Like, I really don't even feel like that at all, to be honest. Like, um, like I feel like it's a plain as day thing. I also feel like in cases where the case is a little more clear and the evidence lines up that the jury still has a difficult position because there, I think there has to be a, a group thing that takes place because you're not going to be able to convince me that somebody doesn't have a doubt. Like, there's so Correct. many convictions, yeah. and I think that you're just in that room with so many people and that you've been there for so long and everybody's going to be so mad at you if you just continue to prolong this. Yes, yes. So I, I think agree. that happens 
more often than we would think. Than we would think, yes. In the original report on the jury, it said that the Miss Kelly confessions were omitted, so they did not hear them. This was actually blacked out in the reports, but it was later found to be in the report and that they did hear the confession. So this is just jury misconduct all down the line. Before we get into what the West Memphis Police Support Group is going to do with all this new evidence, let's talk about what uh, life in prison has been like for Damien, Jason, and Jesse. Damien had a very rough time in prison from the start. He reported being sexually assaulted numerous times and said that the prison guards did nothing to stop it. He filed a lawsuit because of it, but it really didn't go anywhere. Eventually, he learned to make the best of his new life, however. And he even got married, which is weird, not to his girlfriend that he has a child with, but to a new woman who has taken a lead role in the free West Memphis Three group. I think it's kind of weird <laughs> that you would marry somebody like this, in my opinion. Oh, not surprising to me at all. People and that are incarcerated, this happens a lot, like at pen pals. I don't really know. I don't necessarily think it's pen pals necessarily nowadays because of it being electronic. But they uh, talk to people that are incarcerated and have these relationships and like get married and good for them because I know, you know, everybody deserves love and to be together, but very yeah, strange. Yeah, I have in my notes, I have love is love. But. That this, uh, yeah, very strange that that um, happens. Not as crazy as you would think. And it's not like I'm saying that he's obviously this awful man to marry, but it's like, how are you going to get to know somebody on that level through? Yeah, I, that's what I'm saying. Like, it happens a lot, a lot more than you would think, and I people are really dedicated. While in prison, Damien also took an interest in literature and began writing. There's less information on Jason's stay in prison that I found, but from what I found, he also took up literature and was writing poems while incarcerated. He would send some of these poems to the West Memphis Three Support Group for them to post on their website as well, so that's kind of cute. Both Jason and Damien seemed like they were trying to make the best out of life in prison. Jesse, on the other hand, looks like he was changed the most. While the other boys look like they're really just grown versions of themselves, more respectable even, Jesse has shaved his head and now has a tattoo on his scalp. So I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm not saying that having tattoos is bad. I'm not saying that if you look a certain way, that makes you a certain way. I'm just saying that you can see the toll that prison has taken on Jesse a lot more than you can see it with Damien and Jason. I think it has to do with his uh, mental capabilities. Yeah. And Jesse is correct, the one who confessed. Jesse is the one who confessed. So he, yes. Being incarcerated is hard for anybody that, uh, you know, would appear normal and have uh, normal uh, mental capacities. So somebody with intellectual disabilities, I can't imagine the implications that prison and jail would have on him. And I really just mentioned this in no way to judge Jesse or to make him seem like a bad person. But it's just, I think it's just sad. Yeah, you just see. Yes, yes. And also, I'm not going to lie, I'm sure that while you're uh, in there, you have not much else to do but think about things. And, like, he knows. he's They're in there, and they've been in there for this long because he spewed some bullshit. Like, at the end of the day, that's really what I feel like happened. So I can imagine mentally what he's going through trying to navigate thoughts like that because you know that they're happening. Yes, all of them, literally yeah, all of them. All of I can't them. imagine and Damien being on death row. Yeah, and I can't, I wonder, I just want to know if they're also, I assume that they would be locked up in different places, not all in the same uh, 
like jail or prison. You said they're in prison, correct? Yes. So they wouldn't be in the same prison, but also just like how much hatred do um, Damien and Jason Jason have for Jesse? Because uh, I think I don't I don't know. This would be me speaking from my personal opinion. But I think they, as they grew and as they matured, they, they probably it. understand. Yeah, you're right. I just, yes, I feel like as they probably gotten older, but like just initially being in those young boys, like I can't imagine navigating those thoughts and those feelings being in the prison system because there is really no help for them. In being in there for this horrific crime that you did not Yes, commit. that you did do, especially... Um, any crime is bad, but, like, anything specifically done to children, we all know people in prison reap hell for that. Rightfully so, if they've, you know, if they've done stuff to children. But it's just sad because, obviously, uh, not obviously to everybody, but obviously to us, you know, it seems that they didn't really do these extremely uh, brutal crimes. And it was expected that these boys were going to go through hell in prison. Melissa Byers, at the end of Jesse's case, was on the news, and she said... Jesse, sweetie, prison's not a safe place. And then paused for a minute and then said, I'm a male in a skirt. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely in the minds of these parents and anybody who watched them go to prison that they were going to go to prison and get their comeuppance. Mm -hmm. So, and what was honestly one of the craziest twists of this entire case is Mark Byers pivoting on his stance that the Westminster Three are guilty and actually coming to their defense guns blazing. Wow, was it after? Now, let me ask, was this after the DNA evidence was confirmed that Terry Hobbs yes. was at the scene? Of course he would. I mean, yes, I'm glad that he did. 100% so glad that he did. But yeah, duh. Like. So he is pissed that they are in prison and Terry is not. He even makes a little, like, trifold, like like a science project folder thing. And it's of his alibi for that night, and then Terry's alibi. And he was like, <laughs> So it's like a presentation. He, it's a presentation. He goes, I was looked into more than this man, and I have this alibi, and I was with the police, and I was looking for my son, but we have DNA evidence for Terry Hobbs, who he does not have an alibi. This man is clearly guilty, and we have the wrong people in prison. And he's like screaming at the camera. Well, good. No, like, I was. Good getting fired up because, like, I also can't imagine after being behind the defense, you know, uh, in this this long with yes, these are these are the boys, you know, these are the boys, and now all of a sudden, years later, being like, nope. In addition to Mark Byers, Pam Hobbs actually comes to their defense as well. She takes back the things, the awful things she said about the boys. And she even says that she believes Terry would be capable of killing the three boys on the news. Oh, wow. And it's funny because in the interview with the Dixie Chicks lawyers, or it might have been the police, but they were asking Terry, you don't think that uh, your wife thinks you're capable of this? And he was like, oh, no, I know that she wouldn't say anything like that. And then it cut the documentary cuts to the news clip of Pam saying that. And it's just like... Do you yeah. know that, Terry? Did you know that, Terry? In 2001, Arkansas passed a statute that allowed convicts to challenge their convictions if new DNA evidence comes to light. Despite this and the new DNA evidence, Judge Burnett denies yet another retrial request in How? September. How? Also, are we only having the same judge because it's the same small stinking town? 
and there's only one judge? Like, why are we seeing... Or I mean, like, I just don't understand. A lot of the time, which really doesn't make sense to me, but you hear it very frequently, that whenever a case is retried, it gets put back under the same judge. But this time, they took it to the Supreme Court in Arkansas, which they had done in the past. They've taken it to all the way to the Supreme Court in the past, and it was shut down. But this time, the new DNA evidence gives them enough to convince them to order a trial court judge to determine if the new DNA evidence and the jury misconduct was enough to warrant a new case. And this happened in November of 2010. And like I said, Judge Burnett was elected to the Senate in Arkansas, so he left his position as judge. Honestly, the new judge like really reminded me of Larry the Cable Guy. Like in like, he looked like him. He sounded like him. He it was just funny. Oh I was my like, gosh. we love this man's a judge, and he literally sounds like Larry the Cable Guy. With the Supreme Court of Arkansas granting them this retrial, the lawyers of the West Memphis Three decide to not actually take the case back to trial, but to opt to take the Alfred plea. The yes. Alfred plea is a technically guilty plea for the crime but the individuals can maintain their innocence. The reason for doing this is to avoid the chance of the prosecution being able to convince the judge or the jury that they are guilty and even for a harsher sentence, which okay, makes sense. it's like what's used in plea deals. A lot of the time they're going to convince you to take the plea deal rather, rather than take it to court because going to court is expensive. Yes. It's time consuming and it can get, it can end, blow up in your face. Worse. The three take this Alfred plea and plead guilty and maintain their innocence. It's um, interesting in the press release about this, uh, Jason says that he was not wanting to take this and he was not going to take this, except due to the fact that Damien was on death row. And he said that he, don't, he doesn't think that if he took this, that he possibly could have been killed. So it's of note to say that they're not very satisfied with the fact that they still had to plead guilty to be yeah. um, heard, to, to be reheard. But re-heard. you wouldn't be either. I mean, like nobody would be just so sad. After this Alfred plea, on August 19th, 2011, the three walk free after spending over a decade behind bars. Oh, great. Great, great, great. They got out. But are they able, like, were you able to see, do they get to live, like, are they living semi-normal lives? Or, like, were they able to integrate well back into society after? That's just a lot mentally to deal with at a young age and then to be incarcerated on top of it. Damien wrote a book about his experience in prison, and it was published. And Jason wrote a book along with another author. So both of them have been very open about their experiences, and I think that they're trying, or at least Damien is definitely trying to make sure this doesn't happen to other people, and he is hell-bent on finding the true killer. In fact, in January of this year, 2022, a judge denied Damien's request to test for more DNA evidence on the shoelaces. They denied this request. Their reasoning seemed like it was because if the test that they were going to perform would, like, destroy the evidence, too. So it would be, like, a one and done. Like, this is, like, a last shot. This is it. So they were denying it because they didn't want to risk that. But it also seems like, at this point, what do we have to lose? They're not really looking into anybody else. Well, I, I don't know. I feel like I also, I wonder, and this is so sad, but are they just kind of done with it? Like, you know, they realize they messed up. Those men are now released and back into society and they have their life back. Like, why are we going to go back now, 28 years later, and try to find this killer? Not that, I mean, of course I think that, but I just wonder if that's why they... But you have to think it's not even the same goddamn police force at this point. Like, all of these people probably retired. Yeah. So it's like, 
do it? Like, what do they have to lose at this point other than to show how messed up their original conviction was? Correct. But I'm glad that we were able to end on a somewhat, this is like a hesitant somewhat, but a lighter note that the boys did eventually get out of prison, but not until after almost a decade of emotional and mental trauma. That about wraps up the case of the West Memphis Three. I wish we had more. I wish we had a new conviction. I wish we knew who did it to these boys. But at least we know that the three people who didn't do it are not not, sitting and rotting in prison. Thank you guys again for listening to this case. And I apologize again for making it a two-parter for my first episode and leaving you guys with a slight cliffhanger. But I can promise that my next episode is not going to be a two-parter. But I will not promise you that it's not going to be long because it is wild. The case of Jalea Davis is a tragic and suspicious accident deemed by police. But as we get into the case, you will find out that literally none of the evidence really adds up. So it is a perfect case for me to cover on this podcast. And isn't this a West Virginia, like not local to where we are and where you're talking about like it is a West Virginia case, correct? Yes, it takes place in the Parkersburg area. Also, you'll find sometimes it's an Ohio case because it takes place in a part of West Virginia and Ohio that is literally yeah, it's three the, minutes from one state to the other. You go over the bridge and you're in Ohio. So I just always think that those are, you have, I feel like we get the same um, cases that come out of West Virginia, the same big true crime cases. So I'm excited to hear something that I have not, no knowledge on at all. Yeah, I'm thinking that most people really don't know much about this case because it's really not a quote-unquote true crime case because it's not been deemed a crime by police it's really just an An accident accident. quote unquote so stay tuned for that episode i think you guys will really enjoy it but thank you again for listening and thank you to my co-host for being back for part two i uh, am so glad that i was able to do this uh first two episode journey with you not knowing anything about the case It was crazy to uh, really see it unfold, and I can't wait to be back on in a future episode. I would definitely have to have you back on again soon. This was very enjoyable to go over with you. I hope everybody's having a great day, afternoon, night, whenever you're listening to this, and I hope everybody tunes in again soon for another case that does just not add up. (laughs) 